From Nickelodeon Studios in Burbank, California, this is the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Hector Navarro. On this podcast, we always talk about our love of Nickelodeon cartoons. But ultimately, this is a podcast about our love of cartoons, period. Our guest today might not be a Nickelodeon native, but she's worked on animation staples like the movies Madagascar, Spirits, Dying of the Cimarron, and groundbreaking HBO shows like Todd McFarlane's Spawn. But what she's most well-known for is the Kung Fu Panda trilogy. She was one of the heads of story on part one. She directed part two, co-directed part three, and the worldwide love of those films have made her the most successful female animation director of all time. Cannot wait to talk to Jennifer Ya Nelson. Absolutely. Can you see me? Should I move I over? I see, a like, bit? Oh. <laughs> I'm a big fan of your work. I really loved uh, Real Adventures of Johnny Quest back in the day. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So that is kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, oh my gosh. I just want to get into it. Do you have a memory of your first animated movie or cartoon show? It was actually in Korea because I was in Korea until I was about four and a half. And my family moved over here. But it was a Korean film that was kind of a knockoff of Kashern. It was called Goldwing, and they had this feature film. And it was my very first movie, and my mind just exploded. And it was so insane because the quality of animation was so much better than on TV, of course. Yeah. I mean, they got fancy. They had space aliens and stuff. <laughs> uh, and I was so amazed. And it was one of my favorite characters, and he had a robot dog. And it was great. <laughs> That sounds awesome. And talk a little bit about, you said that you would copy your mother when she would draw. My mom is a fantastic artist, and she didn't have the chance to do it as a career because it just simply wasn't that opportunity at that time. But she would sit us down, three little girls, in, in this house in the middle of Seoul, and she, my my dad would bring home tons of paper because he worked at a paper company, yeah. and he, he would just hmm. pile them up in the house, and we had our pencils, and I would watch her draw and you know, when you're that young and you see someone that good, it looks like magic. Yeah. I don't know how that picture disappeared. <laughs> that face disappeared on that paper. And she has, she just did it so easily. And she would just do it to show us. And there it is. Yeah. Now you try. <laughs> and we try. And of course, I would try. And it looked like, you know, a foot. It looked horrible. But I kept trying over and over and over. My sisters would do it better than me because each of them were a little bit older than me. So it was like looking at into the future. My sister, my middle sister was better than me by two and a half years. My older sister was better than her by two and a half years. Yeah. And then looking in the future to see what my mom was able to draw. And I wanted to be that so badly. So we just practiced all the time. You majored in illustration, right? You're right. in college. And was that the time where you had a guest speaker who right. was a storyboard artist? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, in college, as an illustration major, you're kind of more thinking of book illustration, mm -hmm. magazine illustration, like editorial art, children's books. And I thought that was what I would go into. But I had always been drawing movies and sketching them, and I didn't know what it was. But I would have movies running in my head, and I would just draw them. And one day, as a guest speaker, Dave Lowry, who is a story artist for Steven Spielberg's movies, at the time he showed a big you know, foam core board with pictures they'd drawn for Willow. 
Ooh, wow. Yeah, his boards were for, were for Willow, and he showed them to us. This is what a storyboard is, and he was a very mellow guy, and <laughs> and he was just showing us, this is what I do for a living. And my my jaw was like on the ground. I was thinking, it's A, it's beautiful. His boards are fantastic. Yeah. And also, I was thinking, you can do that for a living? That's insane. And I'd always felt a little dissatisfied with the idea of doing children's books or stuff because in my mind, I want to do action movies. Yeah. And my boards were all like crazy action scenes. <laughs> and, and you can't do that in a children's book. Yeah. <laughs> and they certainly don't ask you to draw an action scene for an editorial art in a, in a magazine or something. Absolutely. They yeah. just don't. But Dave Lari was fantastic. And he's also a very, very helpful and nice guy. <laughs> and he actually got... I think all three of us, all three girls, our first jobs. And he um, gave my sister, my older sister, a job and so at, at a little animation studio mm-hmm. and said, go here. I don't, I've don't. i got too much work here. You know, go, go knock yourself out. And my sister called up and said, there's a, an opening for a PA position at this studio. It's jet lag. And they were doing Conan the Barbarian TV show and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and biblical direct-to-video shows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not exactly what I'm into. Right. But um, they, they, she said they need a, someone to make copies, and you're in your final semester. Why not? And, mm-hmm. like, I would be so happy people would pay me to do something. That's yeah. fantastic. So I drove in my barely running car 30 miles, 40 miles one way after class to go and make copies. And I was making copies, and I was making very good copies because I'm kind of persnickety about doing a good job about whatever I'm at, making very good copies. And I had all these little post-it drawings all around my workstation because I can't help. You know, you leave paper around me, you know. It's like from when we're little. You leave paper around us, it gets covered with stuff. (laughs) And so I had all these post-it notes all over my workstation. And one of the producers walked by. And I remember he did a double take. He just walked by because he's been walking by like every day. Mm And he'd walked by, did a double take, and he said, who drew those? Mm-hmm. And I said, I did. And I was like 21-year-old little kid. He said, you drew those. I go, uh-huh, I drew them. I said, why are you making copies? And he like sat me down, and, and he had me start doing character cleanup, character designs, designs. I mean, I'm 21 years old, straight out of school, and he had me doing character designs. And it was kind of crazy. Yeah. And then a couple months later, he went to Hanna-Barbera, and so I followed him to go and do that there. That's right. And you were working on Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, yeah. which was awesome. And yeah. I still have that theme song stuck in my head to this day. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, no, don't be. This is a great song. It makes my day awesome. It makes it epic. That's it's great. great. Yeah. It is epic. You were working at DreamWorks. You're working on Madagascar. Before that, you did Sinbad and Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. And while you were working on Madagascar, I think you heard that the next project was going to be Kung Fu Panda. Mm-hmm. And you asked to be on it. And you said you don't ask for anything. And you asked to be on that project. Why did you want to be on that? Because it's got Kung Fu. <laughs> no, I, I'm a huge fan of Kung Fu movies. And the idea of a movie that's called Kung Fu Panda, <laughs> it was just a title. I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. And so I just asked around and said, I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what I'm doing on the movie. If I have to shovel trash on that thing just to be a part of that movie, I'll do whatever. And they said, oh, 
there's an opening for I had a story and I nearly completely lost it. <laughs> I said, Oh, please, 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 please. And, and as, as you said, I never asked for anything. Yeah. I'm very, I was very much a, please don't notice that I'm here <laughs> and then hopefully I won't get kicked out. But I asked, I actually asked and I said, I really, really, really want to be a part of that. I want to see that combination. What exactly does that mean, head of story? Head of story is basically, well, it's the head of the story department on a film, Mm -hmm. but it's also often the lead story artist that was not only tasked with making sure all the other artists get all the help that they need, Mm -hmm. but is also very, very closely um, aligned with the directors and and the writers. They're in a lot of those story um, meetings, Mm -hmm. those script meetings. And so you're there very close working with directors and trying to make sure that you can fulfill that vision in the story process. When you were brought on, what was the stage and development? Another thing, too, that I love about Kung Fu Panda is that it's not a parody. And I think that early on Kung Fu Panda was going to be more of a comedic parody of the film genre. Was that the case when you were brought on? Were you there when it sort of shifted? And how did that happen? I was there very much in the very beginning. We had a, a rough script that was much more parody. It was more contemporary, had music in it and stuff like that. It actually had music in the script. Yeah. Like the background <laughs> music for some of the fight scenes. And there was me, the production designer, Ramon Zebach, and Jeff Herman, who is now the associate producer, I believe, on the last movie. And we were the three earliest folks on there. And we went through about four and a half years of work on that movie. It was a lot of resets and trying to figure out who the characters were and the tone of the movie. Because so many of us were fans of it, I don't think it really ever felt right that it was a parody. We didn't want to make fun of something we loved so much. Yeah. And I think it was the directors that were finally attached to the movie, (laughs) John Stevenson and Mark Osborne. And when they came on, they said that we have to make sure that it's not a parody. We were already on our way there, but to actually have that committed to not have musical numbers in it and actually have it a hardcore action movie, yeah, that's what we wanted to do. And to have the leadership say that was fantastic. Raised in a noodle shop, never seeking glory or fame. He climbed the mountaintop and earned the dragon warrior name. Kung Fu Panda. There is anime and Eastern film influences in it. The timing has some of that style and that language that is different than a lot of Western animated movies especially. It's a matter of camera timing. It's a matter of acting timing. It's a matter of cutting. It's everything that's that's snappier and and a little less Western. And I think it is because we're so heavily influenced by anime. Um, we used to spend lunchtime actually watching really, really, really bad martial arts movies. <laughs> I don't mean the good ones. I mean, we watched the good ones and got through them pretty fast. But I mean the bad ones that were even better because they were bad. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were sitting there at lunch, and I said, because it was my choice that day for what we'd watch, yeah. and I said, let's watch Master the Flying Guillotine because it's so awful. It's fantastic. <laughs> And the whole lunchtime, we're all eating and watching, and I was apologizing the whole time. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Jennifer, you directed the opening sequence still to this day people talk about as being so cool and so unique. Was that 2D animated or CG animated or a combination of both? How did that happen? It was actually a combination, but we wanted to have a 2D look and we didn't actually have a 2D pipeline anymore in the studio because everything was CG by that point. 
So we had to outsource and go to James Baxter's studio. And James Baxter had been, of course, he's an amazing animator. He'd been at DreamWorks, but he had started his own 2D company. Mm -hmm. And so we went over there, and he did a combination of hand-drawn animation that he would do. I mean, I saw those original drawings. are bloody gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> it's piles and piles of papers of beauty. And um, we used a combination of CG, sort of putting the 2D drawings on a scaffold is kind of like early Flash, and uh, somehow managed to warp and manipulate a lot of the drawings and mix it in with actual CG. Very cool. So it looks all like 2D. It was beautiful. And you can talk to just fans of movies, not even hardcore animation fans to this day, and be like, remember Kung Fu Panda 1? Remember that? And they go, oh, yeah, that was really cool. That had this kind of style to it. It reminded me of this. And, and it just set the tone. And you're like, this is going to be so much fun. Do you have a favorite character? This is a tough question because they're all like your children. I get it. I understand. Do you have a favorite character? I, uh, I think the political thing would be Poe because he's the main <laughs> character, and I do love Poe, but I actually really love Tigris because I want to be Tigris. Love Tigris. I want to be Tigris. I want to be able to walk into a room and people would think, wow, she's dangerous and could kill everyone in here. Yeah. People don't think that when I walk into the room. <laughs> I, I thought that. that. <laughs> I thought, oh, my gosh, here comes Jennifer. She is very dangerous. Uh, she probably yeah. knows six different ways to kill me before I hit the ground. Now you'd probably think more of, wow, give her a chair. She looks tired. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another thing I love about Tigris and the entire world. And you've talked about how it was a big deal that you were a female director directing this huge animated movie. You've said that, you know, in the end, it doesn't matter. And even the Kung Fu Panda films themselves, they're, they're genderless. They're, they're movies that men and women and boys and girls enjoy. And I think one of the things that helps that is the character Tigress, because you can mm -hmm. describe Tigress and her personality and her view about uh, Kung Fu and everything with so many different adjectives before you get to, oh, and then by the way, she's a female tiger. Yeah, I love that about her. And I wanted to uh, make sure that she was somebody that you'd want to be. You know, absolutely. And a lot of people had said, "Oh, there's all this fan fiction of Poe and Tigress getting together and becoming a couple." And I thought, "Oh, that's really great. They do that in fan fiction." Yeah. But in the movies, I think it's kind of cool that they don't. Was there any cases where, after an actor was cast, and you would hear a performance that maybe a character or story idea changed paths a little bit? Oh, absolutely. And the third movie's case was Brian Cranston, Lee, the father, yes. the father panda. Li Shan. Li Shan was originally a very stern character. Because if you think about, like, you know, a, a how to do story book or something, the natural assumption would be if the father shows up, you would assume that he would be disapproving because then it gives the main character something to fight against and prove otherwise. That makes story sense. It doesn't make entertainment sense. Because <laughs> you just basically, for the first part of the movie, watch a guy be mean to someone and you like Poe and you will hate them, the father and you don't want them to bond because the guy's a, you know, crappy to him. And you're yeah. like, that's mean. I feel so bad for Poe and I hate this guy. Yeah. And there's also the fact that Poe already has a dad and Mr. Ping. Yeah. If a guy comes in and he's threatening Poe's personality by disapproving and threatening this other father by his very presence of being there, he becomes the enemy. So that first idea of making Lee this harsh guy, saying, no, pandas don't do kung fu, that's bad, and stuff. Brian read it. He's a fantastic actor. Yeah. And if anyone could have sold it, he could have. But even he couldn't make this guy likable. So we looked at it and thought, reset. And I think Conrad Vernon, we were having a brainstorm session. Conrad Vernon is another director there. He's directed other movies. And 
He said, "What if they're not opposite? What if they're exactly the same?" <laughs> I thought that's a brilliant idea. And if you think about it, you know, throw away the storyboard, how to do storybook,、mm-hmm. and look at real life. Mothers will say, "Oh my gosh, you're just like your father."、Mm-hmm. Uh, that is is more common than the other way. And we thought, what would happen if Poe and his father were exactly the same?、Mm-hmm. Poe hasn't had that. He hasn't had someone that's like him. And that made instantly so much more sense. And we went to Brian and pitched the idea to him and said, "How's this?" And Brian, having having gone through the other session、yeah. and tried as very hard as he could to make the other character likable. He he thought reset, and you could see the gears going in his head. He said, "I get it,、yeah. because really the underlying character motivation was the same. His backstory was the same.、Yeah. Everything was the same. It's just how his his personality manifested. Totally, how he dealt with the pain. Did he become mean and protective, or did he, did he be basically become the clown that covers the pain with something else?、Mm-hmm. And that's suddenly he became the character." Why is storyboarding so important? It is where you get to experiment and fail before you commit to the actual movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I think people don't that take much credence in storyboards because it looks messy. It doesn't look pretty, and they、right. go, "Oh, it must take no skill because the drawings are crap." Like, no, it's not about the drawings. It's about the brains. It's about thinking. And it is where you come up with a lot of character development, come up with a lot of writing, a lot of jokes, a lot of scene setups. You do all this planning in the storyboard phase.、Mm-hmm. Really, a lot of the movie gets made during that. And after that, you have to have committed to those decisions because you can't change your mind in full production without、right. doing a massively expensive <laughs> shift. Yeah, it's just execution at that point. Well, it's more、yeah. than execution because the artists are the artists, and they should contribute. But we、yeah. have to know what we're doing. Right. Everybody has to know what they're contributing to.、Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you get chaos. Yeah. So the storyboarding process is the rough version of the movie. Another thing that you said that I love, you were doing press for Kung Fu Panda Three, and you were saying that while、well, you guys were working on it, does it pass the tear test? Are we welling up yet? I can imagine that you guys are working on the tear tests as early as the storyboard phase, because if、yes. it doesn't work there, then it's you know it's not going to work later. It's kind of funny because、uh, you know I love hardcore action, but I got this reputation for being the one that would be put on the super emotional feely scenes as well. <laughs> I'm not like romantic feelies. I mean like make grown men cry feelies,、yeah. <laughs> and I love that because I, I treat it very much like an action scene. They are moments of extreme dynamic range of emotion.、Mm-hmm. In an action scene, you get massive swings of emotion. In these feely scenes too, you get massive swings of emotion.、Mm-hmm. It's about intensity. That's why I love doing these scenes. Absolutely. And one of the happiest moments were when you know the second movie came out, and these this grown sort of. <laughs> Beefy-looking footballer of a middle-aged man came up to me, and he was, you know, he could break me in half. He's that kind of tough guy. He said, "I cried." <laughs> I was like, "Yes, I made a grown man cry. Not only just a grown man, a grown man cry." That, that was awesome. Oh my god!、Yeah. <laughs> Now I'm thinking she could kill me. Now I'm thinking that you absolutely—that's very—that's a lot of power. That's a lot of power you hold over a lot of individuals. So let's go back. You're on Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. This is cool too. Was this the first time that they had 
animatics that were kind of making their way into the storyboarding world. What was, was, what was that like for you? It was very much the beginning of that whole process. I think it's much more standard now. Everyone does these very, very elaborate animatics. But back then, it was uh, something that uh, one, of the, one of the staff members, Toshi, had, and the director there as well, they all really wanted to do this sort of animatic process to prove kind of what they could do. Absolutely. Sort of get a buy-off early. And in case our listeners aren't aware of what an animatic is and how it's different from a storyboard, you want to let everybody know? It's basically like um, seeing a rough animated version of the movie. Mm-hmm. And we do camera work, we do acting, we do all the sort of like a rough stepped um, animated version of the movie. Absolutely. It's much more intensive than doing boards with arrows and just sort of <laughs> scanning and, and hoping for the best. You kind of have to time everything out. Yes. Before that, we would do these timing sheets and no one would really know what they were going to get except the timing director. Yeah. <laughs> that it. Wow, uh, that's a lot of trust. That's, that's a lot of trust. Yeah. In some ways, it's good because no one could say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to work on the HBO Todd McFarlane Spawn series, which yes. is really cool. What was that like? That was crazy cool because uh, <laughs> it was complete hardcore adult animation. Mm-hmm. This is not for kids. And I remember sitting there going, I'm drawing a board that's all about how this tooth that's just got punched out of a guy's face arcs through the, through the air, trailing gore and blood in a beautiful arc. I thought, that's so pretty. <laughs> and the fact that I could draw that and it's animated. Because yeah. animation as a, as a technique is fantastic. You have total control. Yeah. And I was be- raised on anime. And anime is for adults. It's not necessarily for kids. It's for everyone. Mm-hmm. So it's more technique rather than a genre. Mm-hmm. And here it's more for kids. And on Spawn, you could do whatever. In <laughs> fact, you had to do whatever because it's Spawn. Right. If you softened it up, people would be like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> so um, you had nudity. You had violence. You had blood effects. You had drug use. You had all the nice things in life. <laughs> All of the wonderful things. Yeah. Sugar and spice and yeah. blood effects and nudity. That's so yeah. cool. That's great. How did you go from that to working over at DreamWorks? My sister, my other sister, Catherine, my whole career, my sister just called me up and said, hey, go over there and apply. <laughs> uh, my sister, Catherine, was already working at DreamWorks in Interactive, and mm-hmm. she had heard about Spirit, uh, a horse movie. Mm-hmm. And people are having a lot of trouble drawing horses because, you know, horses are hard to draw. Yeah. And I've been drawing horses my whole life, so I can draw horses in my sleep. <laughs> and so she said, hey, they got a horse movie. Go apply. And at the time, I wanted to get into DreamWorks, but I always thought it was impossible yeah. because I hadn't any feature experience. I was in TV. By that point, I had directed on Spawn, but still, it's not the same job. Right. I applied. I turned in my portfolio. I had uh, some live action boards in there as well, which mm-hmm. kind of helped because it was in the format of a film. Mm-hmm. And I turned it in, and they hired me. And I was kind of shocked. I was like, okay. So <laughs> I did not do feature boards at all. It's a different animal. In this case, literally, it's a different animal. It's a horse. It's exactly. a completely di- yeah. totally have different Have you animal. Have you drawn a horse since then? No. <laughs> well, I have. Not seriously. I, I maybe have drawn a couple on phone doodles or meeting doodles if sure. my arm is, you know, off doing something on its own and my brain is doing something else. <laughs> but I it's, I think it's kind of burned out of me after drawing a bazillion horses and action poses and 
Yada, yada. Well, it was beautiful. The film came out and people really highlighted the art and the artistry. And I think the same thing happened for one of my favorite traditionally hand-drawn movies, Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. And then after that, you worked on Madagascar. Yeah. And after that, DreamWorks went CG. What did you do on Madagascar? I was just doing storyboards for about six months because I'd finished on Sinbad. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those nice things where they say, hey, you know, we don't have anything right away. Go help out on something. I mean, that's wonderful they do that. So yeah. I went on, on Madagascar and boarded mm-hmm. on that. It was really fun. While you were waiting to get on Kung Fu Panda, I right? Was. Yeah. I didn't know about it at the time. And then during that time, I heard about it. And, oh, I had to have it. Was there any sort of application process? Did they sort of need to know your credentials? Did you go in there going, I love kung fu movies, I need to be on this project, anything like that? Or it was just like, great, go ahead. It was great, go ahead. Great. <laughs> I, I think it's because it was a small community. I mean, mm. it's not like we did that many films at a time. Mm-hmm. And so if, and I'd been there by that time about several years. So mm-hmm. th- they knew who I was. And they said, oh, she does good boards. We like her. And yeah. I, at least I hope they thought so. <laughs> and uh, and I, I never caused trouble. I never set fires. I didn't threaten anyone or punch anyone out. So I think they That's good thought. That's good advice for our younger listeners is to never start fires, don't ever punch anybody out. Uh, that's great. What was it like for you guys when Kung Fu Panda came out and was as big of a hit as it was? What was that response like? It was insane because <laughs> I think while we're working on it, especially since you know we're, we're not exactly the most arrogant, strange, narcissistic sorts, so we assume if we like it, no one else will. Right, yeah. <laughs> I go, oh, it's cool, but no one else will like it. You know, <laughs> We're just a bunch of geeks, what do we know? But we loved the movie so much, and we had this feeling working on it that it was special. Mm-hmm. But even while working on it, we were kind of, you know, in the back building, no one really paid as much attention That's to us. That's always the case. It's always experience, yeah. Yeah. In the and trenches. So we were just happy it got made. Mm-hmm. We're happy that we got to the end and that we had a movie that we really liked. And then when we showed it and it was so loved and Poe was so loved, it was really icy on the cake. It just didn't feel real. Was there ever a version of this story that didn't have Jack Black? Not in any serious way, no. I mean, <laughs> because Jack is Poe. Yeah. I think when you know you're dealing with maybe very very early script versions and people may have talked about casting that I wasn't part of, mm-hmm. but I only dealt with Jack. That's great. That makes me feel great because I've heard the stories that that a lot of Kung Fu Panda, a lot of that uh, the feelings associated with it are inspired by one of his Tenacious D songs, The Cosmic Shame, oh, which I yes. so relate to. That's such yes. a great relatable. You know, sometimes you follow your heart. And sometimes your heart cuts a fart. That's the cosmic shame. I love that. Yeah. When did this moment happen? Hey, we'd like you to direct Kung Fu Panda 2. That was actually the very end of Panda 1. And Mm -hmm. I was enjoying a bit of time off. And Melissa sat me down. Melissa, the producer of the first movie, and all three movies, actually. She sat me down for coffee. And I was sitting there trying to figure out what to do with my life. (laughs) Because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And she said, you should direct the second movie. And I said, no. Nope, not going to do it. And she said, yeah, you're going to do it. And she's, she's, you know, you don't say no to Melissa. She's a tough lady. She's like a tigress. She's a tigress. She is a tigress. And uh, she said, no, you're going to do it. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. No, you're going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. I said, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I've never, that's just too much, too much craziness, too much responsibility. I can't do this. And she told me, you can do this. And that's when she told me this really sneaky ploy that she came up with. She said, 
when I made you do direct the opening sequence of the first movie, that was what I was hoping you would. I knew you needed that. I wow. knew you didn't believe you could do that, and I did that to make sure you believed you could do it. So she was grooming me then. <laughs> The idea always to go more emotional. It, it was definitely always a plan to go more, more emotional for second one because the first movie you get to know the characters. Mm-hmm. Once you get to know them, what do you do? Do you repeat the same movie over again? That's lazy, and people would be like, "Well, I could watch the first one. What's the point?" Yeah. The second one, you have to go deeper into what makes these characters tick, and it always was a question of what is the thing people ask when they leave the first movie? And mm-hmm. the question was always, why is his father a goose? <laughs> and it's funny because we had always thought of it as just a joke that we would never answer. <laughs> and the, everybody would ask, and they would always ask as if we wouldn't have thought of it. They would always come up and say, I have a question. I'm like, what's your question? They said, yeah. Why is his father a goose? <laughs> and, and everyone in multiple countries would ask us that. Yeah. And I thought, why is his father a goose? <laughs> why is he raised by a goose in a noodle shop in a valley filled with bunnies and duckies and sheep and no pandas? No pandas. It is a big character question. Was that by design or was that something that after you guys had been working on the movie, you sort of realized, oh, there is no other, there's no background pandas, there's no, or was that something that was put in there so that Poe would be unique and then later went, oh, this could work as a story element? It, it was always considered that Poe had to be the underdog and unique, but it's funny, the early versions of Panda 1, you know, there were other pandas. Wow. He had a mom mm-hmm. who was trying to kick him out of the house because he was living in the basement. And she wanted <laughs> well, maybe to that's go, a, little, a little too real, maybe. Maybe that would have yeah, been a little too real. That's she great. wanted to get him out of the house because she wanted to start dating again. She didn't like having her son crimping her style. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was a version. Yeah. But everyone knows what it's like to feel like the outcast, the one that doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. And if you had a bunch of guys that looked just like him, he wouldn't be the the odd man out. Mm -hmm. There was that great moment in the first film where Poe's father, Mr. Ping, has that moment where he goes, Poe, I have to tell you something. And he goes, oh. And he goes, the secret ingredient. And he goes, oh. And and, and I think that was a, was that a nod to you guys acknowledging like, yes, we know this is a thing, but it's a joke. We're never going to tell you. Was that what that was? That that was that. (laughs) And I think that particular scene was boarded by Alessandro Carloni, who helped who was the director on the third one yeah, with me. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was his scene. It was. It made us all crack up. So was, as I said, it's a joke, and we never were going to address it. And yeah. everyone knows a joke. Even in the movie, everyone knows that it's a silly thing. Absolutely. But then worldwide audiences says, no, we can't deal with that. That's too yeah. much. You have to let us know what happens. Right. Um, the sequels, I think, do such a great job of expanding on that. And, and, and the first film is a complete story. It's got a beginning, it's got a middle, it's got an end, and it's great. Mm-hmm. And you think, where can the story go after he becomes the dragon warrior? And then you get to part three and he becomes the dragon warrior, and you go, oh, oh, that's what uh-huh. that means. It's great. You guys did such a great job of finding little elements in that first film in that world and really expanding it. What was that process like going into Kung Fu Panda 3? Did you guys do the story for two and three at the same time? Oh, no. Really? Because there's that great tease at the end of two yeah, with we Poe's do. father. We always try to make each movie as if it was the last. Wow. Because you never know. You can't assume yeah. that you're going to be able to make another one, and you don't want to leave stuff on the table. So the reason why we had that cliffhanger at the end of the second one mm-hmm. was when we did our fact-finding trip in China. 
Yeah. And we had originally wanted to just end with the, you don't know what happened to the other pandas. And then we were on the plane after visiting the panda reserve and holding baby pandas and seeing everybody freaking out over pandas. <laughs> and we realized, oh, man, we can't leave people thinking that all the pandas are gone. They'll be so upset. It's such a downer. Yeah. So we had to put in that moment specifically to let people know that they were okay. Yeah. That's the only reason. We weren't setting up for another one because we didn't know if we'd get another one. Really? That's amazing. Yeah, we just wanted to put that in there like, okay, they're fine. Okay, calm down, they're fine. But what a great dramatic question to hear a character get up and go, my son is alive. And then, oh, (laughs) like, what? (laughs) While you guys were working on the movie, in 2011, here on Nickelodeon, the TV show premiered Kung Fu Panda Legends of Awesomeness. Right. What was it like as you guys were working on it, knowing that the world was just going to be expanded, that audiences were going to meet new characters and new villains and all these different little side quests and everything? What was that like? It was actually great because the world is so huge and it's always been overbuilt. I think it just shows the passion we always felt for the world. Yeah. And we named everything. Yeah. We put little histories around every tiny artifact really? everywhere and we enjoyed doing it. So having an entire whole series about it was really fun because like, oh, they can explore why that's called that and where those things came from and yada, yada. It was different, though, because the series and the films approach things different ways. And mm-hmm. the, the series was so fun, and you get to see more of the history of the five and what they're doing, and yeah. you get to see their relationships more. And the movies were these set pieces where you could go epic scale, totally. which you necessarily couldn't do in a TV show. So you have a co-director, Alessandro, you mentioned him earlier. You're working on Kung Fu Panda 3. Right. And I think that it had a beautiful message. And I want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the story of that. I think the message that I took away was that you can always be the best possible version of yourself. Right. And I love that. Where did you guys find that when working on the story for Kung Fu Panda 3? It's always a sort of a convoluted process coming to the emotional theme of mm-hmm. a movie. And you can walk in with an idea, but often you end up having to shift it and clarify it and hone it as you go. Mm-hmm. And something like that about finding the best you, finding the thing that makes you special and, and embracing it, seemed to make sense when Poe's visiting a bunch of other pandas. Because the lesson he learned in the first movie is that he couldn't learn Kung Fu the way the five learned Kung Fu. And if you are going from student to teacher, what do you bring as your legacy to a bunch of people that are going to be going through the same thing that you're going through? Yeah. Really, he's the only teacher that could provide that lesson for those those pandas. Yeah. He's the only one that understands. So he has to impart the same lesson. And to see each one of them learn what makes them special mm-hmm. and embrace what they can provide mm-hmm. best is something that is such an emotionally resonant thing for everyone. My favorite moment when all the pandas were discovering that, the old lady panda who said, a lethal killing machine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a great joke. Yes. Uh, that's fantastic. That's great. What, who, who came up with that little bit? That one I believe I came up with because <laughs> I boarded that scene. That actually makes sense now that after, that after yeah, our discussion. Yeah, okay. Machine. I just that old lady that's calling herself, that was funny. I just threw that in on a board pass so and funny. people laughed, so we kept it. It's so funny, but it worked because she was focusing her chi, so it must have been true. She's a lethal right. killer. That's great. Yeah. Well, in the previous scene, he, she did kick Poe in the nuts, so yeah. that's kind of, she's probably the most lethal of all of them. <laughs> You said that even as a director, you're always drawing. Right. That's still the case? Yes. It's actually, every director does 
the job different ways.、Mm-hmm. Some write, some draw, some don't do any of those things. They just lead in other ways. I like to draw because that's how I communicate. I tend to be very soft spoken and quiet. And if people assumed what I wanted was what I appeared like, I think we would have a very soft and fudgy movie. <laughs> Instead, my drawings speak for me and show a tone that speaks for me. And so I like to board a lot because. Everyone can interpret the same concept in different ways.、Mm-hmm. And if I draw it, everybody goes, oh, that's what you want.、Yeah. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so it makes it very much a shorthand. Yeah. And I just enjoy it. Jennifer, do you have a dream project that you would love to work on that you haven't had a chance to work on yet? I think I would love to go full hardcore action on something. <laughs> like full hardcore action. Not even three Kung Fu Panda movies has scratched that itch yet. You can still, you're like, do you want to go full hardcore? It's not enough. It's fantastic, <laughs> but I think, it, you know, it's, it's like a nine out of ten. I want to go 11. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. If you could give advice to young artists who are starting out, people、mm. who maybe want to get into the animation industry or people who are just finding their own path and they're creative in different ways, what advice would you give to young people? I think there's a couple things.、Um, one is find a thing that you're passionate about. Don't try to ape somebody else or ape what you think a studio wants. I think people will say, oh, I want to get a job at such and such place. I'm going to send them stuff that looks exactly like what they've done. I'm sorry. Then you're copying somebody whose tastes are 20 years old because you're copying people that have gotten the jobs now and went, got out of school 20 years ago, and it's 20 years old.、Yeah. What they need are things that are new and now. So don't try to copy what's already been done. Find the thing that makes you passionate and excited and give you that little chilly feeling, and people will respond to that as well. And, and also, you'll be better at it. And the other thing is, if you, when you get turned down, because you will get turned down a lot, <laughs> don't take it personally. Don't take any criticism of your work personally because it's separate from you. It's often a case of casting or just timing. And just find the, the situation that works for you and don't get discouraged if you get turned down. Jennifer, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And thanks for sharing with us today.、Oh, pleasure being here. Thank you. <laughs> Wow, that was so much fun. I hope that you listeners enjoyed that conversation with Jennifer Yud Nelson as much as I clearly did. I think it was kind of obvious. I'm a, I'm a big fan, but you guys are not going to want to miss an episode of the podcast. So subscribe on all of your various platforms wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review if you'd like. Be sure to visit nickanimationpodcast.com for more episodes and tons of cool bonus content like behind the scenes materials from Kung Fu Panda. Check it out. Thanks to the awesome crew who puts this podcast together. This podcast is produced by Jonathan Highlander, Dana Vasquez Eberhardt, Kelly Smith, Andrew Huebner. Original music by Useful Creatures. All of the incredible social media for our podcast is made by Narbe Manassians, Greg Nix. And thanks to the man who works at controls and makes me sound better than I have a right to, Manny Grelva. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast and keep watching cartoons. <laughs>